So if you could adapt any book into film that hasn't been adapted yet, what would you choose? Hmm, that's a good question. My favorite book of all time is probably Pulp by Charles Bukowski. Oh. And so I don't know how you would possibly make that into a movie, but um, that I, I think it would be interesting to give it a shot. It's a very... It's a very chaotic book. What makes it so chaotic? Uh, it's it's kind of got a lot of like Aqua Teen Hunger Force vibes where it's just the, the story is making leaps in logic and you just kind of have to keep up with the characters and go like, oh, yeah, we're we're going down this train of thought now. OK. I've never heard someone reference <laughs> Charles Bukowski and Aqua Teen Hunger Force in the same conversation, but I guess that's the making of a great pop critic. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know. I, I love in Aqua Teen Hunger Force when Shake will say something crazy and then Meatwad will just believe him and start making up his own stuff. That's kind of like the characters in Pulp. It's like... One of them just starts making up nonsense and the other one just runs with it. Um, how about you? Is there a, a particular book? There are so many. It's so <laughs> difficult for me to choose just one. I think I am just waiting for them to finally come out with a great adaptation of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. Uh, and it's such a cool comic. I guess I'm going to count comics with books here. They also get adapted. Um, but I would like to see it be animated. I feel like too often people really want to make things live action and some properties like great fantasy and sci-fi books, I think, would make great animated stories, which is why it's so nice to see with Castlevania, for example, that they went the animation route versus doing a live action Castlevania, which would just rehash so many Dracula plots that we've seen before. But with animation, you can render it a certain way that's more imaginative. Yeah, I agree. I don't know too much about Neil Gaiman, but I know he's a popular... He's a popular guy. Yes. No, he he is a fun writer, too. I think if you like Stephen King, who is the subject of this episode, you might also like Neil Gaiman. So let's go ahead and dive in. Let's do it. I'm Shira. I'm a rom-com fan. I'm Brett. I'm a horror movie fan. What do we do, Brett, at Necromancer? Well, each week we pick a movie from our respective genres, and we watch and review those movies, and then we remake, remix those movies. We've turned the horror into a rom-com and the rom-com into a horror, and it's a grand old time filled with existential dread. Uh, is it ever? And so is the mist. 
this week we are covering book to film adaptations and Brett has chosen the mist for his horror movie. So prior to this conversation, you'd mentioned the mist among several other films that you were thinking about recently. So what made you think about this film? Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen it. And I think it's, you know, it's one of those movies that fits today just as well as it did when it came out. Bunch of people stuck in a place with scary stuff going around outside. It feels more relevant today. I know. Uh, And so, uh, I don't know. It just, it it had been a while and I put it out there and then you, you grabbed onto it like a tentacle reaching (laughs) from the mist you're like, like a books pronged, to film. Like a pronged <laughs> tentacle attached to a Lovecraftian monster. Uh, yeah, I had seen The Mist a long time ago and knew that it was a Frank Darabont movie and that he also did uh, The Walking Dead. Uh, and coincidentally, both the film and the TV series have a lot to do with people talking for extended stretches between bouts of violence. <laughs> right. It seems to be his MO as a creator and a writer. Yeah, that's very, I mean, um, uh, the mist had a little bit of night of the living dead in it, right? It's a bunch mm-hmm. of people stuck inside a confined space. Only the mist kind of amps it up a bit and turns it from a couple people into a house into a handful of people into a grocery store. Yeah, it does have the feel of, um, I forget, you said Night of the Living Dead. Is that the one where they get trapped in the mall? Uh, That's the one before it where they get trapped in the house. Oh, but yeah, it it has a similar vibe to that, but it's been expanded to the grocery store. So before I launch into the summary, I have to ask you the question, does the mist hold up? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Um, I think it's a great movie. I don't think I, I can understand every decision made in the movie, but watching it now, I think it's kind of like... Um, oh, what was the movie I was thinking of? Um, watching it now, it just kind of reminds me of like a big, oh, it kind of reminds me of Blade Runner 2049, where it's like, yeah, it's, it's a big movie with these big lofty ideas and it's really cool to see it given a big budget, but it also, it's, it's kind of trying to be a crowd pleaser and you can't really mix you, you can't really mix crowd pleasing with three dimensional in-depth human being characters that are struggling over cosmic horror stuff. I mean, I think right. you can, but I think this movie, it just, I was surprised to find out it came into, I it came out in 2007. Yeah. Kinda, more than, tw- uh, yeah, it was more than 10 years ago. But to me, it kind of feels like a nineties disaster movie you know what i mean with influences of the 50s horror do you think that has more to do with the novella and it being a stephen king novella and him being kind of pretty firmly rooted in the 90s and 80s uh it could be i read the first half of the novella but i mean if this was 
if if this was high school and you were my teacher, I would be BSing my way through saying I had read the full thing. I plan on reading the full thing, but I, I procrastinated on my homework. Um, I think the book works in certain way. Like, you know, it's it's like any book to, to film adaptation. In some ways, the book works better than the movie. In some ways, the movie works better than the book. And it, it's, I don't know. So does this, does this add to your belief that the mist you know, has the kind of material that would make a great TV show or miniseries, something more longer format versus a movie, which needs to be crowd pleasing within a two hour time span. Oh yeah. If this was a, uh, an HBO show specifically, this basically is uh, Lovecraft country. Uh, I watched the first two episodes of that show and Holy smokes. I'm hooked. It's good. Oh yeah, I am hooked. Uh, all I need to hear uh, the <laughs> costuming on the show is already something that I've looked at and been interested in. They have a great sort of stylish eye as far as the aesthetics of the characters and how they're how they're dressed. Yeah, I know goes, you don't care about that as much. <laughs> no, they they specifically make a joke at the at the beginning of the second episode about this character trying on a bunch of these clothes, and I, I don't know the character's name, but it's the lady, and she looks like a fucking badass. It's it's great. She and she is a badass in the show. I um I don't know I'm I've I I like I I, I want to get into HP Lovecraft stuff, but I don't know if I've ever found that right vehicle for it. Um, right, I feel like I've enjoyed Lovecraftian stories filtered through other people's eyes. Like yeah. you know, we've got of course this. Um, there's a movie with Sam Neill. I think called oh, yeah. Possession. Um, but usually through the, or Guillermo del Toro, I think has his own Lovecraftian story that he's told. But I, I always enjoy it filtered through other people. But whenever I try to read Lovecraft stories, they just bore me. But let's, let's tell people about what happens in this movie. It's going to remind you a lot of Stranger Things, but without the precocious children. <laughs> So, the which myth. is another Stephen King trope, homage, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's basically it, if the Stranger Things kids aren't in Maine, I would be shocked. <laughs> um, but I'm I'm terrified to go to Maine now. Maine is filled with dangerous Stephen King things. Don't look into the storm drain. There are clowns <laughs> there. Um, and then also there might be a portal to a monster universe. <laughs> so David Drayton, he is an illustrator who's clearly painting the dark tower uh, <laughs> in his studio in a nod to Stephen King right from the beginning when an incoming storm forces him, his wife, and their son to take cover in their basement. And then the next morning, they find that the storm caused a tree to come through their window and a mist is approaching across the lake. Uh, David and his son, Billy, then go to the grocery store with a neighbor, Brent, while mom stays home. And on the way there, they pass by electrical trucks and the military going the opposite direction. 
things are also a little tense between David and Brent because Brent is an out-of-towner and he attempted to sue David last year and he lost the suit. Uh, So while they're shopping, the outside of the grocery store is covered by the mist and a man runs in the store claiming there's something in the mist and they can't go outside. So it kind of, I like how the opening, you you kind of start to get in slowly and it's like things are happening and you're getting the plot in pieces. And then suddenly there's something in the mist, everybody inside. It's, it's crazy. I like how he sort of mixed a a few different ways to open the movie. Um, So nobody believes the crazy guy. Uh, And then they hear the screaming Uh, And the ground begins to shake. No one knows what's going on, except that there's clearly something dangerous about the mist. Uh, And then one woman needs to leave because her kids are at home. And if you've watched The Walking Dead, you'll recognize the lady. I don't know her character's name on The Walking Dead, but anybody who's seen that show will be like, she must be special. Um, So she wants to leave to get her kids no one is going to help her. She says, shame on you. Uh, and then she walks off into the mist, her fate unknown. David goes to the back of the grocery store to check on the generator. And that's when he hears a big banging against the loading dock door. He tells Ollie, Toby Jones, uh, that um, him and three... He tells him and three warehouse workers about what he heard, but nobody believes him. Uh, and then they want to send this guy, Norm, out to go unclog the vent. David's like, don't go out there. But Norm's like, you're a pussy. Uh, and he says that. Yeah. <laughs> and then when they partially open the loading dock door, that's when Norm is attacked by a Lovecraftian tentacle monster who rips his face off. And just drags him into the mist. Uh, And the other guys apologize to David because he was right. Uh, And then David tries to warn the other people in the grocery store. But Brent is like, you're clearly playing a trick on me because you're still mad about the lawsuit. Uh, And even though the store manager goes back there and is like, no, he's telling the truth. They're still like, no. Uh, this, so now this we. Is where, this is where the movie starts to like really paint with broad strokes instead of those nice subtle fine touches, because Andre Bruhauer like he's so good. He's too good for this. He's way yeah, too good for this. He if if you ever want to see, and I don't mean to say that it's bad writing, but it's 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 kind of like a leftover from the book that that just kind of got transplanted into the movie. Which is like they they had to create this tension between them, and so the fact it goes nowhere though. Yeah, like like there's already tension between them, but then the fact that they like they can't come to an understanding, and how close minded Andre Bruhauer is, it just like the fact that he's he's so willing to just go, uh, yeah, this is a joke. Good one, guys. I'm not. Stupid! Anyone who believes this is like ah, the movie just kind of starts to 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 crumble a little bit. Where there's again, like Andre Bruhauer delivers a great performance based on maybe not that great of a character 
Yeah, this is such a waste <laughs> of his talent. Um, but we, the whole point of this, Brett, is that we have to have our factions. Right. Once people, once civilization, the veneer of civilization is pulled away, tribalism takes over. There's clearly, you know, a path that we're meant to tread here. And even when characters are like, really, we're going to get into this tribalism shit this soon. Other characters remind them, they're like, yeah, it sounds crazy, but that's what we're in. Mm-hmm. So even they lampshade the fact that so much of this is not really believable. Um, but so we got the doubters where Brent is the leader. And then we've got the believers led by David. And then we have Marsha Gay Harden as Mrs. Carmody, who is a nutty Bible thumper who thinks that the myth, the mist is God's wrath. She is totally Mrs. White. She, you know, like you have a thing for crazy doctors. I think that I might have a thing for holy roller matriarchs. I just love a crazy Bible thumper and I love it even more when it's a woman. Uh, so. We've got the doubters. They want to leave the store. And then one of the believers offers to go out too so he can get a shotgun from this guy's truck. So they tie a string around him, poltergeist style, yeah, uh, so that they can yank him back if there is any trouble. Is poltergeist a Stephen King story too? No. Feels like something he would write. Uh, Now that you mention it, they do kind of feel like... You know, they would be hanging out. Poltergeist and the Mist feel like they would hang out. Absolutely. So, as predicted, all hell breaks loose. And when they drag the string back, the end is covered in blood, and all that's left of the man is his bottom half. What a great scene. (laughs) But it's totally unclear what happened to everyone else. You just have to assume that the doubters died. But what if they ended up like another certain someone? Uh, That's what I wonder. Right. So the survivors that stayed in the grocery store begin barricading the front, but there's only so much they're able to do. And then in the evening, giant insects attracted to the light inside break the glass and fly in, followed by like a pterodactyl creature. Uh, and they're able to shoot and kill the creatures, but they have some casualties. This girl who had a crush on one of the soldiers. Oh, yeah, they're soldiers, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a guy who got covered in burns. So then David and Ollie want to go to the pharmacy to get medical supplies. And they take a small group with them while more people start to fall under Mrs. Carmody's sway. Uh, And then in the pharmacy, they're attacked by giant spiders and a strung up soldier tells them that he's sorry and that it's their fault. So back at the store, they interrogate one of the privates and they ask him where his two friends are. They find them in the back because they've committed suicide by hanging. And then the private admits that the Arrowhead Project caused a hole between worlds and the creatures from the mist came through. Uh, So then one of Mrs. Carmody's religious converts, Jim, hears the private and drags him before the angry mob. And then they stab him and throw him outside in the mist where he's attacked by a giant monster. Uh, So then the remaining sane people agree that they've got to get out of there. I haven't really had a chance to talk about Amanda 
But for a character who doesn't do anything, she does feel like a strong character. I wish that they had given her more to do than just provide the gun. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but so they stash a bag of groceries near the entrance and they agree to wait until dawn to leave. But then when they do, Mrs. Carmody and her followers are waiting at the entrance and Ollie shoots and kills Mrs. Carmody so that they can escape. Uh, and this is like right after they've decided they're going to sacrifice David's son, Billy, to the mist because Mrs. Carmody says, grab the boy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, is that the part where you were like, this is so crazy. Uh, like, Marsha Gay, again, you know, Marsha Gay Harden, Andre Bruhauer, they're delivering great performances, but then they're asked to do these ridiculous ridiculous like turns on a dime <laughs> andre bruhauer is giving this really cool antagonistic performance that's complicated and then he's like no i'm not a dummy you can't make me laugh i'm not gonna fall for your joke and then marcia gay harden it just out of nowhere is like sacrifice the boy you thought that was out of nowhere? Clearly, I I have more affinity for these types of characters than you. She was talking about how Abraham sacrificed his only son and, you know, a miracle resulted uh, as a result. So she wants to try the same thing with Billy. I mean, duh, it's in the Bible, Brett. I don't know. I just, like, it, I felt like there could have been a cooler better way to to introduce that like that was deserving of some kind of biblical sermon monologue instead of just a crazy lady shouting you know so this is one of those things oh sorry what were you gonna say i I don't want to use the term karen but she kind of comes across more as a shouty karen than like a a religious mouthpiece figure like a she's the ultimate karen yeah (laughs) she's the leader of the karens but the thing is so i know that there was a missed tv series but then it got canceled but if they were to redo it this is one of those things that they could spend a lot more time on to make it believable mrs carmody's rise to power from the crazy lady that nobody listens to to the cult leader. Uh, so I, I, you know, I think, I think that the TV series may have focused on the cultish aspects of the missed arrival, but I would definitely put some story time into that because to me, she's one of the most interesting characters, clearly. Yeah, for sure. So they shoot and kill her because that's the only one that, that that's the only way they can get out of there. Um, and so it's David, Billy, Amanda, the guy who shouted that there's something in the mist and a little old lady. They make it to the car. Everybody else is murdered by spiders. Uh, so the five survivors then drive until their gas tank is empty and the adults then silently agree to commit group suicide, but there are only four bullets. David agrees to sacrifice himself to the monsters. He kills everybody in the car and then stands outside begging for the monsters to come on. But then out of the mist comes the military. Help has arrived, but too late. David sees the woman who left the store in the beginning has been rescued along with her children. He falls to his knees and screams in anguish. 
no. He had his Charles. He had his Charlton Heston moment. You know, this is a really bleak ending, and I am a sensitive person. I do have feelings, but the way that Thomas Jane acted the scene made me giggle. It, I I completely understand every decision that was made in terms of why they did the ending that they did, but I find it very hard to watch and take it seriously. <laughs> I just, I, I don't know, man. I think there's gotta be a, a different way. There's you didn't gotta- like the hymnal music? Oh my God. It was so bad. <laughs> like, just, you know what I mean? Like there's some things you, there's some things you can show. There's some things that you don't have to show, like showing the kid wake up. That to- was unnecessary. I'm glad that we cut out of the car right. when he did the actual shooting, but did we really need to see his little puppy eyes? Like, dad. Uh, and then, and then like, the 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 music with the slow motion and the the lady who got rescued and it's like sometimes in a movie i get it sometimes you can ask these open ended questions but i i just feel like the way that it's built up and that it's painted on with the broad strokes i feel like what is the message? Like, is there a message of the movie? It feels like the movie's trying to give me some kind of message, but also just like, oh, let's just open the table for discussion. Let's, you know, let's let's go to the crowd. What do you guys have to say? Like, I, I just message. Uh, I don't know. I, I like Ex Machina, right? Because Ex Machina is a movie that is kind of like a litmus test in the sense that how people react to the movie and what they think the movie is about and how they react to the ending and all the themes of the movie. It says more about them and how they perceive the movie than it does about the actual movie. But this movie is kind of like, no, there's, it feels like there's one way to, there's a right answer and a wrong answer. There's one way to enjoy this movie, which is the existential comic horror thrill ride disaster movie alien attack sci-fi movie of the 50s adventure ride that it that it is and i just don't know that adventure ride and then opening it up to discussion at the end i don't know that those two approaches to filmmaking work but i, I mean it's a- hate to be in a discussion of this movie <laughs> i i can imagine going to afs this movie is playing Frank Darabont is there. They drag the chairs up to the center stage. The house lights come up and I have to listen while people stand up and talk about these things you've described. And Frank Darabont say, well, actually I meant this and blah, blah, blah. And it was supposed to specifically evoke these things. When I think it really just boils down to, monster people are the real monsters yeah i mean clearly the mist and the monsters within the mist have no morality they are neither evil or good they simply are 
and they exist to propagate and to feed. Uh, and it's humans that apply their own readings to it. So, of course, Mrs. Carmody's reading is that there is a just universe that that deploys God's justice. And then Thomas Jane is faced with the meaninglessness of his choices in the face of a completely morally neutral violence that you can't control. But, you know, I, I agree with you where that's a type that's one type of movie, like a Terrence Malick movie it messes with shit like that. And then there's another type of movie that just has fun and takes you on a monster thrill ride. I'm thinking of, um, I think it's called Slither. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Where people are attacked by the, the slug aliens. And it's just, it's just having fun with it itself. Right. And it's and it's we're here to get killed by aliens and kill aliens, uh, and it doesn't really have a pretense towards anything else. Where I feel like this movie wants to have both ways, it it wants to mix the tones and make it work. Yeah, uh, I agree with everything you just said. After I watched the movie, I remembered that much like when Mad Max Fury Road came out and then they did a black and white edition, the Chrome edition, I was like, I think they did that with the mist. So I looked it up and they did Frank Darabont released a black and white version of the mist. And why? well, I have to, he said he always envisioned it black and white. And I have to say after watching the trailer, like watching the black and white trailer for the mist looks like a great movie. It looks like a great movie, but then, you know, once you watch, but, but then you know what the movie is and you know that, that what, that, what the trailer is trying to sell you on and what the movie actually is don't actually line up. But, um, no, I I think the, the, the black and white might've helped to add some of that surrealistic sci-fi stuff to it. And I mean, I know people say it and I think it's dumb because I know people, I, I know what people mean, but I think other people take it and and just repeat it. But practical effects are better than CGI. <laughs> oh, I was wondering what you would say about the CGI effects in this movie. I think that even though they weren't realistic, they did they did okay with the technology they had at the time at two thousand seven. Uh, I think when it comes to like tentacles. And when it comes to to certain things, I think that practical effects are just better. Like when the pterodactyl monsters are breaking in and flying around and stuff, that's a choice you have to make where either we can do this using uh, CGI or if we use practical effects, it's going to look super cheesy and super bad. But... When it comes to ten, when it comes to just the sneak peek of one little tentacle, I mean, you you put you put that little scene in the mist up against anything from from uh, the thing, and it's oh it's, god, it's, the thing is so effective. I know you can't compare any movie to the thing because that's that's unfair to to any movie. But 
So, you know, I actually think that the best, I think that the perfect ideal is a hybrid of the two and it's best exemplified in Baby Yoda. It's clear that Baby Yoda is extremely cute because they use a puppet. It's mostly practical effects, but then they do use uh special effects in some scenes where they show him walking or vomiting up a frog or something like that. So they pick and choose exactly when it makes more sense to use CGI versus using practical effects. But uh, yeah, the, the baby Yoda way is to me the perfected ideal of effects. It's to, to throw in one more little bit of spice on there. It's the, the Jurassic Park Spielberg spice. Uh, Ooh, yeah, yeah he, he, he's a hybrid guy. Yeah, you've got the CGI, you've got the practical effects, but then you've got the reaction shot. Oh, like having just watched Jurassic Park again recently, I'd say about 35% of that movie is completely resting on the shoulders of the reaction shot. And it works because Spielberg is a good director who can get these performances out of actors that lets you transplant what they're seeing, you know, or what your imagination is onto what they are seeing. And I, I think, yeah, like this movie doesn't have the, it doesn't have the practical effects close up or it doesn't, it, it 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 dips its toes in the reaction shot, but it um, I mean that's one way to do it, right? Like that's the thrill ride way to do it is is for the spectacle. And um, but there's a lot of again, there's a lot of good stuff going on in here. I I mean clearly there is because it it led to a, a great career for Frank Darabont. Um, and and yeah, there are good things about this movie, but in general, I I I'm less into the style of horror movie that's trying to oscillate between meditative and big bursts of violence. Unless it's The Conjuring, then forget everything I said. <laughs> uh, but here, I would have I I could have used more stimuli. I could have used more monsters. Um, or more people being monsters. Um, if, if you were, rather than trying to find a middle way between developing the characters quickly into their end goals and spending, you know, a lot of time in a long form, uh, maybe a, a mini series or whatever, something that is a little bit quicker, I think, I don't know, would have resonated with me more. But, before we get any further into other stuff, I've got to ask, who was your crush from The Mist? Oh, my God. Toby fucking Jones. I knew you'd say Toby Jones. I knew it. Tearing it up in this movie. Like, not only is Toby Jones a good performer, but a, a good actor. He, he's he got the best crowd-pleasing moments of this movie. He is a fucking badass. He's a sharpshooter. He's a no-nonsense guy. He's like the first guy who goes, hey, this this Tom Jane guy is spewing some crazy shit, but I think he's on to something. Uh, I, oh, Toby Jones, man. I loved him. He, 
He did really well. Um, and and his character was one of the ones that got to have layers to him. Yeah. And, you know, when we talk about, like, killing people in a rom-com or, or something like that, like, one of the best things you could have as an actor, I think pretty much any actor would agree with this, one of the best things you could have as an actor is a good death scene. And Toby Jones is a pretty good death scene in this movie. Like, even though you don't want his character to die the way that he dies, you're like, at least you got a good movie death scene. Oh, he had a great movie death. He had a, <laughs> he, he had a great uh, exit because he was the one who shot uh, Mrs. Carmody. He made the tough decision. Yeah. And, and like, he didn't, he didn't ramp it up in any way. He wasn't like trying to be better than her or trying to, he just, at some point he had an open shot and she was, she was, it was, it was her them. And he said, you know what? Bang. He had to take the shot. Take the shot. (laughs) Uh, How about you? Who who is your crush? I think it's very clear that it's Marsha Gay Harden. I I really enjoyed her Holy Roller performance. Uh, And I'd seen her recently on uh, SVU, which I'm rewatching in the background while I work. And there she's playing an FBI agent. And I just, I really enjoy her performances. Yeah. Uh, Marsha Gay Harden is an actress who has very good range, but this is also one of those movies where clearly this role and her calibration of acting were just, they were in sync because she gives a really good performance. I would join her cult. No, <laughs> I would not. I would not join her cult. <laughs> Get the child. The child. I want the blood of the child. Uh, so how hard was it to turn this into a rom-com? I found it easier to turn this into a rom-com than to turn... Uh, What's the other one we did? Uh, I found it easier to turn this one into a rom-com than Gentlemen Prefer Blondes into a horror. I'm not a teacher, but I also decided not to help you. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, the funny thing is I kind of feel like the opposite where I struggled a little bit here, but I wrote the Gentleman Horror Story in, you know, a few minutes. Right. I think part of it could be that I think when it comes to, yeah, when it comes to our own genres, there's just that idea that, you know, like these are ideas that have probably been jostling in our head for years. So it's like, oh, this movie touches on this one idea that I had. How can I link those and and work on that idea creatively? Whereas The Mist turning it into a rom-com, I'm like, fuck it. Let's just have some fun. I think that that for me has been the funnest part about um, rewriting in our opposite genres, because I think uh, originally I had thought that I would just write rom-com remakes and you would just write horror remakes, but then you surprised me and you had a rom-com remake for um, uh, what was our first episode? Um 
for for Halloween. Oh, that was episode zero. But yeah, uh-huh. I, I was I was pleasantly I was pleasantly surprised. And I do think that it's this weird thing where it's less pressure to just write a drabble in the genre that you don't feel any possessiveness about, or it's just like, oh, I'm just gonna try this out. Yeah, I um and and like the idea of leaning into the formula versus wanting to reinvent the wheel. It's a lot easier just to go, Hey, it's a rom-com. I'm just going to do what rom-coms do versus a horror where I'm like, okay, so I've already seen all these other horror movies that deal with this kind of stuff. What can I add? That's new to the conversation. And then it, you know, some of sometimes it, it really works out, but a lot of the times it's like, eh, I'm just going to make an homage to this movie or just make a blender movie and throw a bunch of different stuff from a d- bunch of different movies in. Oh, I've definitely been there where I just uh, think, okay, I'm going to just steal or borrow as many elements as I can get away with. Yeah. So who should go first? I think you should go first. All right. Well, <laughs> I decided to call my rom-com remake Misty. All like right. the song. You've heard the song Misty, right? Uh not that I remember, but I'm if it's you're a saying... jazz it's a jazz standard. Um I'm sure it's, that a, I it's a it's a love song. Um gotcha. but it's called Misty. Uh, so one day a thick mist falls over a small town in Maine and the people learn that a secret military project has torn a hole between worlds. So that, you know, the twist in the mist is the premise in my version where I, I'm just coasting right past that revelation and they discover that the world on the other side is essentially a medieval fantasy land where magic is real. Uh, And with no way to repair the barrier between worlds, the military makes a pact with the fairy folk to guard the border. So it's kind of like a rom-com version of touch of evil where you're in an, you're in a town where it's a border town and you know, people aren't supposed to be crossing over all the time, but obviously they are. Um, so um, this, even though there's kind of a demilitarized zone, this definitely doesn't stop people from crossing over. So one day David Drayton takes his son to the grocery store and then he leaves him alone by the comic book kiosk. And when he, when he goes to get something, but when he comes back, Billy is gone and in his place, David finds a blue rose And then Amanda Dunfree sees this and tells him Billy was taken by the other side, probably by a witch or a fairy who can't have children of their own. You have to imagine that in a fairy tale land, stolen children are just traded nonstop. Oh, yeah. I imagine there's a huge market. They love stealing kids. It's just like, it's a part of, it's a part of fairy tales. Um, so she gives David her card and Amanda, who in my version, Amanda's the hero. She's, she's like a magical detective mm. who investigates cases for both sides. So whenever somebody crosses over and gets into trouble, Amanda can get her out of it. So she goes to find uh, Billy 
and then she preps for her journey to the other side by collecting some gadgets like lighters, flashlights, things from our side that'll seem impressive on theirs. Uh, and then she goes to one of the baggers, Ollie, and says a code word. And that's when we learn that Ollie is actually a gnome in disguise, which I think Toby Jones is born to play that role. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> that sounds really mean. I'm not trying to be mean to Toby Jones. Uh, I Clearly, he can play anything. Uh, so he came over to this side because he'd been banished, and now he lives in disguise, and he helps people between sides without alerting anyone. So in addition to the main main border, there are little windows too into the other world. So you can play with it and make it, you know, kind of fun and fantastical. Like he opens up a locker and there's a portal to the other side. Uh, but then Ollie also insists that Amanda's going to need help from someone on this one. And he's got a guy. Amanda's like, no, she's a lone wolf. She works by herself. Uh, and then when they get to the border, she meets this orc man. I don't know why I keep writing these stories where people get paired with magical creatures. It's really not the kind of stories that I write by myself. Uh, I, I, I don't necessarily have that bent in my own writing, but I've done several of them for this podcast and, it it just keeps happening. I like it. Um, so there's the orc. He's green. He has an underbite, clearly, but he's also kind of hot. Maybe he's played by a pro wrestler who wants to make the same move as Dwayne the Rock Johnson, or maybe he is Dwayne the Rock Johnson. But that type of guy, you know, a body, uh, a himbo. Mm-hmm. And then Ollie introduces him as Misty Grimstone. Uh, and then Misty says, Grimstone is fine. Um, and Amanda, who is not into the teamwork business, says, fine. So at first, they don't get along. They hate each other. They're from literally different worlds. So, of course, they're, you know, you don't understand me. Well, you don't understand me. Um, they disagree about whose side is worse and who's, you know, ruining everything. But they've got a mystery to solve. Where's Billy? So now that we're into the middle act, this is where I just have no idea what to do. So I made a list of things that essentially would happen. So they have to go on a journey. And obviously, at some point, Amanda has to save Grimstone's life with technology. Maybe she uses a Teddy Ruxpin to impress someone into thinking it's a demonic doll possessed. Um, and then Grimstone has to save Amanda's life. And maybe they meet a wacky talking animal sidekick, you know, like the donkey in Shrek who provides the comic relief. Uh, and then maybe Amanda and Grimstone talk about how his first name is Misty. And he's like, oh, it's a family name. Uh, and then Amanda sings Misty for him. And because Aww. it's a love song, it's really romantic. Uh, so they get closer to figuring out where Billy is. And it becomes clear that a human has crossed over to the other side and has formed a cult that steals children from the human side. Uh, and then clues also start to add up that Grimstone is not really who he says he is. 
Uh, and the two close in on Billy's location to mount their rescue. And we learn that Grimstone is actually a prince and he has been trying to locate the cult so that they can be driven from his land. The orc army is going to move in and they're going to kill all the humans, not just the cult leader. And Amanda, you know, says, you can't do this. We just need to go in there and get Mrs. Carmody, who's the leader. Uh, and Grimstone says his hands are tied. Uh, and then Amanda says that she's going to go in alone. So, but it's over between them. So we get, you know, the big, the big final battle. Amanda rescues Billy from the cultists. The orcs start wasting people, but she doesn't get a chance to see Grimstone ride in and demand that they cease and just kill the cult leader. And then later, Amanda is at home after giving Billy back to his mom and dad. She's depressed. Uh, but then outside her window, she hears him playing Misty on a mandolin. It's Misty Grimstone himself pulling a, a Lloyd Dobler. And then she runs outside, they embrace, and it directly transitions to their wedding day where you've got all the orcs on one side and then the humans on the other. Two sides united in harmony and love. The end. Aww, yeah, it's not like world peace. It's like total multidimensional peace. Exactly. <laughs> right. At least between these two border towns. Gotcha. Yeah, I like it. It's got that kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe like a princess bridey kind of adventure feeling. Plus I Constantine, was... private, spooky private detective. Amanda's kind of a Constantine. Maybe we can also give her a bisexual agenda, too. So where she is, you know, a little fluid, a little cool. You know, she's got that vibe. Sure, lots of species, lots of genders. I also just like the idea of Misty Grimstone being just like this giant orc-like man who's also a softy, you know? Right. Again, like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, he could pull it off for sure. An orc prince? <laughs> yeah, the scorpion from the scorpion king to the orc prince. Somebody tell Johnson. somebody tell The Rock I've got the perfect pitch for him. <laughs> I would say he's too busy, but the man can't be too busy. It's like every time you think he's got 15 spinning plates, he's like, oh, by the way, I'm spinning plates on top of my spinning plates. You're like, how much stuff can this guy do? A lot of it he does with his lats. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. If, if you work out constantly like that, yeah. After a while, you just flex and like a roll pops out. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. So do a little flex me. and there's a cameo. <laughs> so tell me, what romantic direction did you go? Uh, I went with, I can't really remember. I, w I went with like a religious theme on mine. And so what I figured I was going to do is I'm going to call mine the Amazing Wedding. So it's, wow. Yeah. 
<laughs> the amazing wedding. The amazing wedding. So it's kind of like a uh, like an amazing race. It's like a, a game show where co- where couples compete for the best wedding, right? And where does the mist come in? You know, I I don't really have a mist. <laughs> <laughs> I I just I I I I pulled sometimes you pull on a thread and sometimes the thread is the main theme of the movie and sometimes <laughs> the thread is like this little tangential part of the movie. Um but I've got I've got David and Amanda are churchgoers. I'm gonna make them teens. So they're oh, young okay. teens and they go to church and they're kind of you know, they're kind of indoctrinated into this church that's very cultish, but it's like a widespread church, right? So it's like Christianity or something. And so basically the church wants the the money and grandeur, and maybe they want like the location where the wedding is going to take place. So the church wants to use the wedding for their own gain. So what they do is they kind of do this like arranged marriage crusade thing where they, they convince either they convince or they hold trials or auditions or a contest. Is this the hunger game of weddings? Kind of. So, <laughs> so then David and Amanda basically get picked or are forced to, or whatever you want. They get picked to, enter the contest. So these are two people who are not in love competing for the ultimate wedding. Right. And do they have to fake a relationship. Yeah. Ugh, we love fake relationships on the rom-com side. Oh, I love it too. <laughs> uh, and so, okay. So here we go. I've got, I've got five couples total so we, we've already met david and amanda we're also going to have like an older generation couple that's more evangelical so they approach every competition in a very sort of like this is our uh uh divine what what is it called divine manifestation what am i thinking of God's will. like div- define manifesto div- divine a manifest destiny? Yes. Okay. So the the older couple is going to represent that manifest destiny where they're like, this belongs to us, right? There's going to be a foreign couple that is like they've been converted into this religion. And so they approach it with maybe a little bit of their own former religion or their own cultural way of thinking and then there's a shy couple that's just going to be very shy and timid and like, hey, we, we hold these beliefs, but we don't need to preach them out to everybody. And then there's going to just be a super competitive couple that doesn't even give a shit about religion. They're like, we just want to win. We want to win the game. This is a game. We're going to win. And so we're going to have four, four steps, four contests. For the marriage and each one is like you've got to win by winning the contest you win the the theme right so the first one and these are all going to be based on the four horsemen of the apocalypse wait what now what does that have to do with weddings <laughs> so because you've got you got to conquer you've got to conquer the fear of the unknown the fear of famine 
Right. You've you've got to work together to conquer insurmountable odds. That's uh. that's the theme. And so so these people are taken to a confined like a castle esque thing. Maybe the castle can just be surrounded by mist, right? But it's the, the, the idea what is time is this what what time does this movie take oh, this place takes, this, this will probably take place like 10 years from now <laughs> this is this is one of those future this is one of those future fantasy sci-fi movies it's um, like the same time is running man apparently <laughs> right um and so it, it's very um uh, what's the offshoot of Dungeons and Dragons? There's that offshoot of it, but it's like it takes place in the future, but it's got a lot of orcs and dungeony, dragony stuff. Um, so the first one is going to be based on war. So it's going to be land. We got to fight for the land that we're going to use as our wedding, the location of our wedding. So it's like a hiking, it's like a a, a hiking contest. Wait, and, so it's not a contact test to see who can book reservations at the no, venues of Baptist. No, this is a this is a an amazing wedding contest show. Yeah, what would be exciting about people sitting around a computer booking things? No, they got to hike. They got to go on this adventure. <laughs> no, they got to go on this adventure. And so each couple approaches the 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 task the way that they would do it. So it's just going to be a lot of strong character choices. So when it comes to hiking, like the evangelical couple will kind of like, you know, they'll have a sword and a gun and they'll like, we just, we're going to plow our way straight through to the end and cut down everything in our path. Like threatening people with guns? Yeah, that's the way they do it. It's not people. They're they're not taking over a land of people. It's like a, it's like a jungly adventure landscape hiking, terrainscape adventure. Uh, the foreign couple, maybe they have, you know, they just have like a different way of thinking about things. So they can they can use some kind of invention like they can, you know, like Rick and Morty, how Rick just invents like rocket launchers out of sticks and leaves. Uh, the shy couple uses camouflage to like sneak their way around. And the competitive <laughs> couple basically turns into predators and they're like these super beings who can jump from branch to branch and you know uh so stuff like that like and basically we, predators like the alien predator right like the like the arnold kill me i'm here you're one ugly motherfucker uh so then <laughs> we just do this we we just we just control c control v this for the next three four horsemen of the apocalypse we have a baking contest of some sort. We Is have, that for famine? Yes. We have a, a death uh, horseman. And so death is kind of like entertainment. Like these people are watching these people like do something that is, I don't know. But it's basically just going to be like a dance. We'll somehow tie death into dance in a talent contest. And maybe we can like start to kill people off. In, in, in the contest and be like, oh, there's, you know, if you don't perform well, then you're going to die. Perform for us or die. And then the when final one is... Love. Right. The, the final one is conquest. Uh, it's conquer. And so in this one, it's going to be kind of like, you know, at the end of American Gladiators, when you do the final 
the Q-tips? The, the No, not the Q-tips. It's not the Q-tips or the one where you're in the globe or the Powerball one or there, wasn't there like an archery one? Like it's none of those. It's the it's the final one, the gauntlet where you got to run through all of them and it's a race to the end. And basically, you know, none of the points matter. You Whoever wins the final one wins it all. Uh, and so it basically comes down to our couple versus the competitive couple. And eventually our couple wins, but because they win, they're going to get married. But they realize throughout the whole course of the movie, they, they realize that while they like each other, they're not really marriage material, <gasps> right? Like it, like marriage is a big thing. So they they're into each other, but they're not ready for marriage yet. Right. And so what they do is at the end of the, the movie, they basically go against the church. They turn the church down and they're like, listen, we're not going to do what you say anymore. We like each other and we're going to work. Cause you know, now that they've won the show, they've got to like, you know, kind of like hunger, even though I don't like the hunger games, it's kind of like hunger games where it's like, Oh, you won. Now you have to be a mascot. You know, you, you have to do what we say. You're a winner of the contest. So now you're a mascot. And they're like, no, we don't want to do that. So it, they decide at the end of the movie, instead of becoming married, they're just going to go on a first date. And Aww. it's like, oh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I, I, I packed, I, I packed crazy religious <laughs> themed you you are forced to work together under the confines of this weird religious thing and turn that into a you have to work together intimately to overcome insurmountable odds. And isn't that just like life? Right. Yeah. So I yeah, I don't I don't know. It's uh I, I, I like the movie, but yeah, how how it relates to the mist in in rom coms, I, I don't know. You have a character named David and a character named Amanda. That's pretty much <laughs> the relationship. Yeah, at least I got the names right. Sometimes I change the names <laughs> just for, just for kicks and giggles. I'm like, ah, this guy is going to be Bob and her name's going to be Jocelyn. And you're like, what does this have to do with the movie? I'm like, I don't know. Bob it's and okay. Jocelyn. I came up with an orc named Misty Grimstone. So I don't right. think I have any room to talk about changing the names. Uh, but I've noticed that you like writing plots that involve competitions. Oh, yeah. And you like making your characters collect the tokens. Oh, yeah. <laughs> gotta, gotta collect. Yeah, it's... That's your catnip? Let's just throw in as many MacGuffins as we can. I, uh, I, oh, I forgot what one. movie I watched. <laughs> I forgot what movie I watched recently, but there was some movie where I was just like, how many MacGuffins can you possibly throw into one movie? Oh my god! I don't know. As I'm going to go for the record. As possible. <laughs> I'm going for that record. Put me in the books. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So before we get into our love bites for this episode, let's do some housekeeping. You can find us at necromancer pod on twitter and facebook on instagram we are at the necromancer podcast and you can also email us at necromancerpodcast at gmail.com review like us tell us what you think give us your unsolicited opinions about rango we want to hear them all 
Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm falling back on my Rango conspiracies. Real life conspiracies <laughs> are starting to take over. I've got to, I got to find out a way to to make the Rango conspiracy and the lizard people Illuminati conspiracy work. Oh, yeah. What What about the Lemurians? We've got we've got lizard people. We've got lemur people. Uh, we have ape people. Uh, too many people. people. Too many people. Too many hybrids. Um, so love bites. What would you like to recommend this week? Uh, I'm just gonna name drop a couple. Uh, even though I want to go Ooh, into a twofer, that's a Shira move. Well, uh, maybe more than than two, but one Half Life is an amazing game that has. It's basically Project Arrowhead from the lead scientist slash awesome fighter shooter guy. I grew up with Half Life and Counter Strike and. Those yeah. games have been around for a while and they ain't broken. Yeah, I am not into first person shooters, but man, Half Life is one terrific game. Uh, the Void, I know I've asked you about The Void uh, and you haven't seen it, but The Void is very much the Mist HP Lovecraft meets Hellraiser. So. You had me at Hellraiser. Yeah, uh, The Void will definitely be a movie that at some point we do cover. But my recommendation is, I think, a movie that is very nihilistic, very existentially dready, very confined. What The Mist wanted to be. Right, and it's a very slow, in-depth look at the pain of making tough decisions and how there is no morality behind the actions that we have and all that kind of good stuff. Is a little movie called It Comes at Night. Did you ever see that one? I haven't seen it yet, but I saw the trailers and it looked interesting. It is a fantastic movie. Now, uh, one of the things that I really like in a movie is rewatchability. I don't know that this movie is very rewatchable. I've only seen it once, and that was when it came out in theaters. Uh, It's a tough one to watch because it's so fucking depressing. Like, it's so dark and depressing. Um, and it's a tough one to, to get through. And most of the people, when the movie ended, let out an audible groan. When you hear the <laughs> movie, when, when, when you hear the title, it comes at night. This is a little constructive criticism for filmmakers out there. When you, when you hear the title, it comes at night, you're thinking it is probably something physical. The, the it in it comes at night. It, this is not a spoiler. It's the mental anguish of like having to do bad things it's the existential fear and dread of being forced in situations where you either will die or be forced to kill someone it's a metaphorical it it's not a physical like monster there's no monster in the movie i would i would definitely have been confused about that if you hadn't made that clarification because Clearly, It Follows came out before It Comes at Night, and it was very clear that the It in It Follows is a monster, not It Follows at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So when I went into the movie, I kind of was like hoping for some kind of monster movie, but I think the movie sets it up very clear from the beginning that like we're not going to give you this grand payoff of a monster at the end. It, this is going to be a slow slog where we we make you regret sitting down in the theater to watch this movie. 
but it's a beautiful film. I mean, I, I would like to go back and rewatch it. It's just things are really depressing lately. And I don't know if that movie is, <laughs> is, is one I could do. Um, and usually I'm not like that. Usually I'm like, oh yeah, Requiem for a Dream. It's really flashy and cool. It's not depressing at all. Um, but yeah, it comes at night, man. That's got the, if, if, if you wanted the mist to lean more on the, on the crazy cerebral cerebral side. Yeah. Check it out. How about you? Good to know. Well, the good news is that my recommendation is not depressing at all. In our previous episode, when we covered Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, I recommended a book that I wish was adapted for the screen when Dimple met Rishi. Uh, sorry, Rishi. Uh, and in this episode, I'm going to recommend a book that is about to be adapted for Netflix and hopefully coming out within the year 2020. Uh, and I actually recommended this book in episode zero, but none of you have heard that episode because we had sound problems. Uh, and I'm going to recommend a book series, uh, the Bridgerton series by Julia Quinn, who I have recommended before on our Neighbors episode uh, when I recommended What Happens in London, which is a very funny romance novel. And the Bridgerton series is a series of romance novels about a single family and all of the people that they end up falling in love with. And it's about to be turned into a Netflix series by Shonda Rhimes. And mm. they already have a bunch of great actors on board, including uh, Mary Poppins herself. Julie Andrews will have a role in the series uh, as a certain lady whistledown who is the author and the anonymous author of a gossip rag about London society. So mm. it's a really fun and light little British comedy romance. Uh, and I actually recommend starting with the second book in the series, which is playfully titled the Viscount that loved me, you know, like James Bond, right. uh, except He's a British Viscount, and it has that classic rom-com scenario of the guy is going after the wrong girl when the right one is right in front of him, uh, and the right and the wrong girl happen to be sisters, so it makes the plot extra spicy. Uh, but it's a it's a fun little heartwarming series, and I'm really, really looking forward to the Netflix adaptation. Uh, and I can't wait to see what Shonda Rhimes does with it. And I think that if this goes well, I am certain that we're going to see a lot more uh, romance series adaptations because it's clearly, you know, it works. Yeah, Netflix has been doing a lot of them. Uh, I haven't checked them all out, but I've checked out one or two. The algorithms don't lie. People yeah. are obsessed. People like what they like. And Netflix encourages filmmakers to make good and interesting films. Yeah. So Julia Quinn, the Viscount who loved me. Very nice. And it's a, it's going to be a movie, right? Not a show. Oh, it's going to be a show, actually. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Uh, so I imagine the first season will probably cover the first or 
you know, the first few books. Um, but hopefully they get picked up for another season, you know, with Netflix, it feels like they let any show go for at least three seasons. So yeah. we'll cross our fingers on that one. Um, but I, I like stories about families and stories about how people develop over time within their family structures. Uh, so I, I have really high hopes for this one. All right. Yeah, I hope it turns out good. All right. Well, I guess that is all for the... I'll, I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. You're going to have to sign us off. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of something clever. I don't know. Uh, um, the Fog isn't... Adrian Barbeau plays a DJ in The Fog. Let's just say whatever she said when she signed off. Um, I never saw The Fog. Oh, it is good. I, I put it off for a long time, but I recently watched it, uh, I think, within the last year. It is really good. Um, what does Barbo say? She says... That's all, folks. Smell you later. <laughs> Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.